well, good morning. <laughs> um, we, uh, we wanted to show that video just to give a sampling of the different responses to who Jesus is and, and does he matter today. And so we're, we're all faced with this question, right? I mean, um, we should ask ourselves, no matter where, what our background may be or, or even where we may be today, who is Jesus Christ? I mean, if, if millions and millions of people in the world have embraced him as this Savior and King, then what, what do I believe about him? Does he matter today? And so the Gospel of John is going to help us ask that question, and I hope also answer this question. If you would, please turn in your Bible to John chapter 20. We're going to examine verses 24 through 31 this morning. Now, um, if you need a Bible, we've placed some Bibles under the chairs and either in front or behind you. So uh, if you have one of the hardback Bibles, it will be, we'll be on page 907. Uh, if you're in the back and maybe have a, a soft cover, um, then that would be page 776. So if you have a hardback Bible, we're on page 907. And seven, John chapter 20. And it's important for us to realize that John has been telling the story of Jesus Christ. He opens his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how John opens his gospel, and then from chapter 1 to chapter 18, he tells the story of his earthly ministry, how Jesus goes around declaring the truth about God, the kingdom of God, and himself. He does these miraculous signs. We see John highlight seven prominent signs throughout his gospel. And then in John chapter 18 and 19, we come to the crucifixion narrative of Christ. And what we learned last week is that Jesus accomplished his mission of redemption by becoming the sacrificial substitute for our sin. He died in our place so that we might have life. We looked at the fact that God is holy and just. And so in order for God to meet the demands of his justice, satisfy his justice, sin had to be dealt with. We would all agree that we have wronged. I mean, even if you're an atheist, you would probably agree that we've wronged one another, even if God is in or out of the equation for you. And so from a theistic worldview, we say, well, if God is and we have offended him in some way, then what do we do about that? And the question is not so much what we do about that, but it's what God has done for us. And so God not only meets the demands of his justice in the cross of Christ, but he also does so through his great and immeasurable love. And so we asked the question last week, have you been caught up in the reckless raging fury of the love of God? Because it has been poured out for us on the cross of Calvary. And so this week, the question becomes, well, what happens to Jesus then? Chapter 19 at the end tells us that this rich man who was rich enough to have a tomb outside of Jerusalem request the body of Christ to, to lay him in his tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. And in the early portions of chapter 20, we find that one of Jesus' first followers was a lady. Her name was Mary Magdalene. She goes to the, to the tomb so that she can mourn the death of her friend, Jesus. 
When she gets there, she finds that the stone is rolled back and the tomb is empty. She runs to tell John and Peter, two of Jesus' closest disciples. And John and Peter, it says they have a foot race to the tomb. Now John's writing the story, so we might presume that he's kind of bragging here when he says he, that, 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 that actually Peter, um, now he, he, I'm sorry, John beats Peter to the tomb. He's a little lighter of foot, I guess. But then Peter, actually, John kind of stands at the edge and he's peering in, but Peter is the more bold, you know, audacious disciple. He just barges right in and they see the linen clothes lying right there where Jesus had been laid. We find that Jesus then appears to Mary Magdalene in verses 11 through verses 18. And then what I want to do is pick up now this morning in verse 19, just to give us a bit of the context, and we'll read through verse 26 as we look at doubt, belief, and the death-proof king. This is what John writes in John chapter 20, verse 19. He says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Let's pray together this morning. God, would you speak to us this morning? As we consider this amazing, really unbelievable claim that you not only sent your son to be the atoning sacrifice for us, for our sin, as we have sung about this morning, but that you, in fact, raised him from the dead to teach us that death has no hold over him and consequently, death has no hold over us who believe in him. And so, Father, I pray that we would have open hearts this morning, that you would open our hearts. For those who doubt, Lord, may you meet them in their doubts. For those of us who believe, Lord, strengthen us in our faith that we might experience life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to find here in verses 24 through 31 is this, that people must Embrace or reject Jesus as the death-proof king. We find this story, it almost unfolds like a play with two acts. You have act one where Thomas is missing. 
He is not in the, the room with the disciples on the first appearance of Christ. And so a week later, Jesus shows up again. And you have this, this episode, this, 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 this second act of an encounter that Thomas has with the risen Lord. What we're going to find this morning is a couple of truths. Number one, Jesus meets people in their doubt. This is good news for us. Because if we're honest, we all have doubt. We all carry doubt. At some point in our lives, to one degree or another, we all doubt certain things. So people meet, Jesus meets people in their doubt. But even more than that, Jesus gives life to those who believe. And so there is no doubt about it. John is writing this gospel, as we'll see at the very end of our study this morning. John is writing this gospel to press people to a response. We must continue in our doubt, or we must embrace Jesus as the death-proof king. First, Jesus meets people in their doubt. We see in verse 24 that Thomas is that guy, all right? He is that guy who finds himself at the concession stand buying an extra bucket of popcorn while the punchline of the movie has just been said inside of the cinema. He's, he's the guy who had to go to the restroom when Paul Pierce broke down Carmelo one more time, or maybe LeBron James next week, and hits the game winner, and he runs back inside only to hear the cheers of the crowd, but he's missed the key moment. He missed Jesus appearing to the other ten disciples. This is what verses 19 through 23 uh, told us. You see, the ten who had gathered uh, in, the, in the room the first time we see in verse 25, they tell him this unbelievable news. Thomas, we have seen the Lord. I mean, we might expect Thomas to just burst out into a joyful celebration. High fives all around, embracing his friends, chest bumps, leaping shoulder bumps in the air. But that's not what Thomas does. Verse 25 tells us that Thomas gives this reaction. Unless I see the nails and the marks of his hands and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. See, Thomas is incredulous. He can't believe that this is true. Jesus risen from the dead, this, this is just too much for me to embrace. See, with the strongest demands, Thomas throws his skeptical cards on the table, and he says, unless I see it for myself, I will not believe. Thomas is the prototypical empiricist, is he not? I have to see it for myself. I want to hold the evidence in my hands or I will continue in my disbelief. See, he was a doubter in the resurrection of Christ. Christians over the centuries have actually termed Thomas the doubting disciple. Doubting Thomas. But in fairness to Thomas, all the other disciples got to see the evidence, right? I mean, perhaps some of them would also have been unbelieving to hear this news and say, it can't be true. Thomas was doubting, but 
If we read the Gospel of John, Thomas was not only a doubting disciple, he was also a loyal disciple. So we should be fair to Thomas this morning. I mean, check this out. In John chapter 11, when Jesus is summoned to come to the grave side of Lazarus, his good friend who had just died, the disciples were saying, Jesus, hold on just a second. You might not want to go there because the Jews, you know that they want to stone you. And Jesus, with great resolve, goes into Judea to the graveside of his friend Lazarus, and even there he performs this climactic sign, raising him from the dead. But before that, what does Thomas say? He says in John 11, verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was a doubter on the one hand, but he was also a loyal friend to Jesus. And we would do well to note that this morning. You see, doubt is a real companion for so many of us. We all have doubts at different times in our life about these huge claims. These claims such as God exists, that God is king, he's good, even with the problem of evil in the world. I mean, is there an explanation for that? That's certainly an objection that Christians meet, or even Jews or Muslims? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? See, rather than chiding Thomas for his unbelief, rather than bringing a crowd together and shaming Thomas before all of the other people, Jesus goes and he meets Thomas in his doubt. And for some of you this morning, there, there is a good possibility that some of you come with doubts this morning. And I want to attempt to, in some small ways, meet you in your doubt. See, many people believe that the resurrection of Christ is simply a fabricated tale that Jesus and this story of the empty tomb was simply a fraud created by the disciples to kind of gain a following and be able to continue on with this mission that they had been given by Jesus. And so I want to put forth just a few considerations for you this morning that I hope at minimum will bring you to a place where you would say, you know what, maybe I don't totally embrace this resurrection thing, but it's at least a little more intellectually credible than I previously thought. At maximum, perhaps, for some of you, God will speak to your hearts and you will buy in. You'll say, man, it adds up. It's not, it's, it's not so unbelievable like I thought it was. Why would I continue in my doubt? I believe. And so what are a few of those uh, potential considerations or arguments? Well, number one, alternative theories against the resurrection lack strength. We don't have time this morning to go into the different theories against the resurrection and the different arguments that we could propose against them, but there are all kinds that people have come up with. You have the swoon theory, the stolen body theory, the hallucinations theory, the spiritual resurrection theory, the impersonation theory. You can probably get what most of those are just by the name. And so was the body of Christ stolen? Were the disciples simply hallucinating? Did Jesus swoon? In other words, was he resuscitated back to life? He didn't really die on the cross? Well, none of those arguments are not fairly easily objections raised against those and and, and pretty easily refuted. 
And you could, you could really, if we read through the Gospel of John, we could really come up with enough evidence right here from, from John, this Gospel itself. And so the theories that are proposed against the resurrection really do lack strength. So I would just encourage you, go and examine them for yourself. See what you think. I think you'll find that they lack strength. Number two, the universal view of the people in Jesus' day was that a bodily resurrection was impossible. You say, well, Tanner, you seem like you're arguing against yourself. What are you doing? Well, here's the deal. We as modern people in the 21st century often think that we have it all together intellectually and that ancients were so naive and simple-minded that they would just accept supernatural assertions without much hesitation at all. When in fact, people in Jesus' day would never have seen this claim coming. See, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. You see, the, 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 in the Greco-Roman world, they viewed the soul, the immaterial, as good, and the body or the material, the physical world, as bad. So why would the disciples come up with this claim for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? They could have come up with a different story if they really wanted the rest of the world to buy into their claims. Not only the Greco-Roman world, but also the, the Jews themselves. You see, the Jews did buy into a resurrection from the dead, but it was not this kind of resurrection. It was more of a corporate resurrection at the very end of the age when they anticipated God restoring all things, renewing all things. They had no framework for an individual rising from the dead and ushering in the beginnings of this renewal. And so, why would the disciples, who are not expecting this themselves, steal his body? Why would, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people, would they all be hallucinating at the same time? See, this is, this is even what we find in John chapter 20. Look in verses 8 and 9 of John chapter 20. This is what John writes. He says, Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, speaking of himself, and he saw and believed. But, verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. The disciples were not even expecting Jesus to rise. Not like this. So that is a second consideration for you this morning. The next three are uh, going to be offered in a more quick fashion. Number three, consider the empty tomb and abundant witnesses. I mean, scholars would agree that Jesus was historically crucified on a Roman cross. And most would also say, yeah, the evidence points to there is an empty tomb. What happened? How that tomb was emptied? There's, that's where the argument begins. But the, the tomb was empty. Most would agree that that is true. But then you have the, 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 the appearances to all these different witnesses. He appears to the women, which, by the way, this is not a good evangelistic strategy in the first century. Why would they make this up? Women, the first ones to the tomb? I mean, this is a patriarchal society for sure. This is not a good move on the disciples' part unless they are telling the truth. 
He appears to the women. He appears to the disciples. Paul says he appeared at once to over 500. Paul wrote, wrote 1 Corinthians 15, somewhere between 15 and 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. You say, why is that important? Well, Paul is in effect saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them yourself. Most of them are still alive. Few have fallen asleep, he says, but most are still alive. So consider the empty tomb, the abundant witnesses. Number four, consider the growth and the expansion of the early church. I mean, how else do we explain the transformation in the disciples to this group of fearful followers tucked away behind locked doors to then becoming those who would boldly declare this truth? They would even risk their lives, which brings us to the fifth consideration. Consider the death of the disciples. They are chased all over the Roman world, declaring, testifying to the fact that Jesus has risen, and they would give up their lives. It seems unlikely that they would do that for a possible hallucination, that all of them would give up their life for this made-up story, this contrived, conspired plan. So I hope that you find those points somewhat plausible, maybe really, really plausible. But you may still say, look, I don't don't believe that I could become a person of faith. I mean, this is just simply still too unbelievable. And after all, you can't prove with certainty that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, you're right. I cannot prove that with certainty. But neither can you prove with certainty that he didn't rise. See, I like what Tim Keller says. He says this, doubt is an alternative belief. You see, we all have a faith system. A lot of times we think that it's the Christian worldview versus the non-Christian worldview, and it's, you know, uh, assumptions versus evidence. Faith versus reason. When in fact it's faith versus faith, belief versus belief, assumption versus assumption. I think this is proven out well in the following quote. Listen to this. I cannot know for certain, but I think God is improbable. And I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. This quote is not from the world's most famous agnostic, someone who doesn't know if God exists or believes it's impossible for us to know if God exists. This quote was given by one of the world's most famous atheists, Richard Dawkins, who is the author of The God Delusion. You see, at least Dawkins is honest. He says that, man, I am working on a set of assumptions here. This belief seems improbable to me, but we can't know for sure. And so we should ask the question, how do people come to faith? How is it that a person can move from being an unbeliever to being a believer in Christ and in his his resurrection? Well, number one, they look at the evidence. I mean, this is what we've just talked about. Christians are not people who check reason at the door. Faith has its reasons in the Christian worldview. But number two, they also accept the testimony of credible witnesses. You see, millions of people have embraced the testimony of the apostles and those who have carried on the faith from their time. This is what happens from the human perspective, 
but we know that God also is at work as people come to believe in him. Romans 10, verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The Spirit of God has to open our eyes and convince us that, hey, these things are true. They're worth embracing. And this is exactly what happens for Thomas. He receives both. He sees both the evidence and he receives the testimony. Which leads us to the second point this morning, and, this is, and that is this. Jesus gives life to people who believe. See, not only does Jesus um, meet people in their doubt by, by coming to, to Thomas. You see, let's, let's look in verses 26 and 27 as Jesus comes to Thomas. What, what does it say? Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, Jesus graciously comes to Thomas, and he gives him three commands. The first two deal with the evidence that he asked for. Thomas, put your finger in the nail-marked hands, my nail-marked hands. Place your hand in my nail-pierced side. But the third command is the most important. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, we don't know if Thomas put his finger into the nail-marked hands of Christ. We don't know if he placed his hand into his nail-pierced side. The impression that we get from verse 28 is that he probably did not. He saw and he believed. It says in verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. You see, we see that Thomas, once he sees Christ, he gives this five-word response of worship. He says, my Lord and my God. Let's dissect this confession for just a moment. Number one, he confesses Jesus as the divine Son of God. This is a confession of deity. This confession is a statement of deity. He says that Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus, you are truly the King of Israel. Just as has been portrayed in chapters 18 and 19, you are the King. You are the Lord over everything. And then to ratchet it up a notch, he says, you are God. How, how in what way could Thomas be more clear than to believe that Jesus is divine. He, seeks, he calls him God. D.A. Carson says that the most unyielding skeptic provides the most profound confession. I mean, if we look at the Gospel of John, there is no greater confession than this, no better profession from any of the disciples than what Thomas offers right here. My Lord and my God. It is a confession of deity, but it's not only that. It's also an intensely personal confession. He says, my Lord and my God. See, when we read the Bible, here's an encouragement for you. As you read the Bible, as you hear the Bible taught, 
you should always note the personal pronouns in Scripture. This is what Martin Luther spoke of when he spoke of the holy egotism of the Bible. All right? Obviously, the Bible isn't all about us, and we certainly agree that we as Christians live out our faith in community. I mean, this is why we've started a church here in Medford, right? I mean, the church is important. The community of faith is important. But Jesus not only relates to us corporately, he also relates to us individually. And so Thomas would worship Christ by saying, my Lord and my God. So when we read statements like Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our heart should resonate with these words. This is intensely personal. Jesus loves people, individual people. He pursues individual people to respond to him in repentance and faith. You see, there's a great danger here this morning. You say, Tanner, we're talking about these claims, and you're kind of coming after my intellect, and you know what, man, I could sign off on the resurrection. But the fact of the matter is, while it seems somewhat unlikely and even somewhat contrary to me, someone in this room could sign off on the resurrection and not embrace Jesus as the Lord and God. There's even a story of an atheist who bought into the evidence for the resurrection and believed it to be an an actual historical event, but never converted to Christianity. And when asked why, he simply said, strange things happen in history. You see, there is a difference between affirming certain things about Jesus and actually believing in Jesus. A Christian is someone who embraces all of who Jesus is. A Christian is someone who lives out the words of Luke 9.23 when Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To rewind two weeks ago, a Christian is someone who gives up the lesser pursuits of this world and stops treasuring those things in order that we might treasure Christ supremely and follow him. This is what it means to be a disciple. This confession is a personal confession of worship. And how does Jesus respond in verse 29? He says this, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. There's actually a little question here among translators. Is this just a statement, Thomas, you've believe because you've seen me, or is it a mild rebuke, a question, have you seen me because, have you believed because you've seen me? And honestly, you could probably go either way. The more important statement is the statement that follows, where Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. In other words, happy are those and full of life are those who have not seen me with their eyes, not seen the nail-pierced hands and my spear-pierced side, and still have believed. This is where the blessing comes. This is where life is found. You see, Jesus' words held true for all those who would come to faith on the testimony of the apostles, and they still hold true for us who would believe in him today. 
If you have believed in Jesus, this should be a day of celebration for you. I mean, you should be able to embrace the words of 1 Peter 1, 8, 9 when Peter wrote, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If this is true for you this morning, you have life in Jesus. You should have joy in Jesus. Your heart should be filled with inexpressible joy, filled with glory, because Jesus is alive which means that you are alive as well through faith in him. So Jesus meets people in their doubt. Jesus gives life to those who believe. And then in verses 30 and 31, we find that the resurrection of Jesus truly does demand a response. Look at these verses with me, if you will. It says in John chapter 20, verse 30, this is John's commentary here, and this is actually the purpose of his book. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, we said that the story here, this, this, this episode of doubting, and then believing Thomas is really like two acts in a play. You have doubting Thomas, and then you have believing Thomas. And it's almost as if John has left verses 30 and 31 for us to enter ourselves into the third act of the play. Because what John is saying is, he's saying, look, Thomas went from doubt to belief, from unbelief to faith, from even death to life. And so what about you, my readers? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And that through belief in Him, you can have life, abundant life, and eternal life through Him? John's design is to press us to the point of decision. And before I press on these verses here, I want to just ask an important question that I think might even be helpful for those of you who would be saying, hey, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I buy in. Well, let me ask the question, why does the resurrection matter? If Jesus is the risen Son of God, okay, what on earth does that mean? Well, let me give you four things. Number one, the resurrection is central to our salvation. Paul would say in this great resurrection chapter, it would be a great uh, chapter to read, by the way, 1 Corinthians 15. He would say that if Jesus is not raised, our faith is futile, it's worthless, and we are still in our sin. If Jesus was not raised, our faith is worthless. And added to that, in Romans 4, verse 25, it says that Jesus was raised for our justification. So this atoning sacrifice that he made for us on the cross really doesn't come to fruition. We're not our, 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 our being counted righteous in Christ is tied to both the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So the implications for the state of our souls could not be bigger. Number two, the resurrection motivates and empowers our living for God. 
This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 6 when he speaks of baptism and he says, you were buried with Christ into his death in baptism and you were raised to walk in newness of life. See, the resurrection, it, it empowers and it motivates our living for God. If you want even something a little more shocking than that, read Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19. Paul would say that the same power that was at work when Christ was raised from the dead is now at work in you who believe. So if you want power to live the Christian life, if you are lacking strength for the day-to-day grind, look, the Christian life is not an easy one. We didn't sign up for kind of a walk in the park. It's a battle. It's a battle to live for God. But the resurrection empowers our living and motivates our living. Number three, the resurrection ensures that our good works count. I mean, I love how Paul, he builds this argument for the resurrection of Christ, and he ends it with this climactic statement. He says, he, he, he taunts, he quotes the Old Testament scriptures, and he, he taunts death. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, to finish the chapter, in verse 58, he says this, Therefore, you Corinthians, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. See, every good thing that we do for Jesus, every act of service for Jesus, matters because Jesus has been raised motivates our good works, our service to God. And then finally, the resurrection infuses us with the mission of Christ. And we're just going to take a quick dive in kind of the deep end of the theological pool here because there are really, we, we need to see this from two different angles, okay? We saw in verse 21 of John chapter 20 that Jesus says this, as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. All right? In other words, the mission of Jesus shapes the mission of the church. We take our cues from his mission. And Jesus, as we said at the beginning, he came to declare the truth of God about the kingdom of God, about himself, but he also came to display the truth of the kingdom of God through these miraculous signs. So don't just read the Gospel of John and see Jesus giving sight to a blind man and say, oh, that's nice. Don't see him feed 5,000 people and say, oh, that was really generous of Jesus. That's cool that he could pull off that trick. Don't see Jesus raise his friend Lazarus from the dead and assume that that's all that's going on here. Every time that Jesus performs these signs, he is pointing to what the coming kingdom of God will look like where there is no more blindness, no more hunger or thirst, no more death. Why does this matter for us? Why does this matter for our mission? Well, check this out. Every time we declare the truth about Christ, like I'm attempting to do this morning, I am on board with the mission of Jesus. But added to that, every time that we perform a good work in his name, And there is a distinction there. Every time we perform a good work in his name, we are pointing to what the coming kingdom of God will look like. So that Jesus' resurrection is the down payment, if you will, on what this whole world is moving toward. So that, this is why 
Christian, the Christian worldview matters today. It, like, it really matters for the, the, the homeless dude down in Davis Square who needs a bite to eat. It really matters for next Saturday when Medford Green is going on, and we're going to send volunteers down there, hopefully, if you decide to come. And we're going to clean up our city. Why? Because in the coming kingdom of God, all those things are worked out. We'll live under the rule of God, and we will experience the renewal of all things. So the resurrection infuses us with the mission of Christ. This is why Tim Keller would say, even if you don't believe in the resurrection, you should want it to be true. You should want it to be true. Is this world as good as it gets, or is there something more? Those who believe in Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for sin, as the death-proof king, have life in him. Those who don't, the implication is clear. It's spelled out through the rest of the Gospel of John. They miss out on life. Abundant life, purposeful life here on this earth and eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And so might I ask you, do you doubt the resurrection of Jesus? I want to encourage you to cut ties with your doubt. Look and see Jesus as the risen king. Don't disbelieve, but believe. You see, what we have found is that all people must reject Jesus and continue in their doubt, or they must embrace him through belief in his death and resurrection. What about you? What about you? The resurrection demands a response. I love the prayer that John read for us this morning. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my gracious surety, apprehended from my payment of death, comes forth from the prison house of the grave free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Have you embraced Jesus as the conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might? Do you know him as the victorious risen king where sin no longer has victory over us and death has lost its sting? Yaroslav Pelikan said this. It's an awesome quote on the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead... Nothing else matters. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, nothing else matters. It's a clever way of saying, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then this world just seems to be spinning out of control and really not worth much worth living. I mean, this is part of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if, if Jesus wasn't raised, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do whatever you want to do. It really doesn't matter in the end. But Pelican says, look, if he was raised, then nothing else matters. In other words, nothing else matters in comparison to this. So follow him with your life. Believe in him and experience life. What is the power of Christian hope? 
Why does Jesus matter and why does he matter today? The power of Christian hope says this, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, death has been crushed to death and the restoration of all things is near. Let's pray together. Father, it is good for us to gather together and sing songs of praise to you that you are the crucified and risen king. Your son is the crucified and risen king. Lord, thank you for sending him to be that sacrifice, to conquer death for us, that for all who believe we might have life in him. God, it is my prayer that for those who doubt, that you would meet them in their doubt. That perhaps your spirit would even speak to them now, saying, don't disbelieve, believe in Jesus and find life in him. Father, as we respond to you in worship, we pray that you would just have your way in our hearts. Or if if questions need to continue to be asked, then we pray that Redemption Hill would be a place where people can ask those questions and we can have honest conversations in a loving manner. Lord, help us to be that kind of church. Help us to be a church that is all about you and your great mission in this world. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have, that this life is not as good as it gets, and that the rest of restoration of all things is on its way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.